This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham from New Matilda joined me to talk about the latest in federal politics. Then, Professor Cordelia Fine, a psychologist, author and professor in the History and Philosophy of Science program at the University of Melbourne, joined me to talk about the real science of sex differences. We draw on her 2017 book, Testosterone Rex, as well as a recent essay she wrote in Eon magazine called Sexual Dinosaurs, which looked at the gender bias in neuroscience. Then, finally, John Del Pratt, a horticultural scientist and honorary fellow at the University of Melbourne, joined me to talk about the state of Victoria's native grasslands and wildflowers. John is an expert in restoring native grasslands. We also discuss the state of the Western Grassland Reserve in Melbourne's outer urban fringe. And I'm delighted to have joining me once more Ben Eltham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and he joins me to talk about the latest in federal politics. Hey there, Ben. Good morning, Amy. Nice to be back. Good to have you back. And how are you doing? I'm okay. I'm, I'm okay. Doing the best I can in this crazy time. Yeah, it is a bit crazy, isn't it? And um, of course, curfew being as it is, it sounds like, um, yeah, it can be quite confronting to realise that even if you weren't going to go out, you can't go out. Yeah, there's all that and the challenges of homeschooling um, while you're full-time working um, and um, just just the general kind of difficulties of the time we face. But um, I also have a, a job still, so I'm, you know, I'm very grateful for that as well. Yes, and that is something that is really a, a huge issue for people in Australia right now, but also Victoria in particular doing it tough, given that um, the Premier a couple of weeks ago announced some pretty tight restrictions on industry, and that meant that a number of industries have had to drastically reduce their activities. Um, you know, for example, Bunnings, which seems to be the clear example for everything nowadays, is, is Bunnings open? Um, and <laughs> what's going to happen to Dan Murphy's that, um, you know, priorities people, but also, um, you know, abattoirs we've seen have to reduce and increase huge amounts of PPE and um, a number of other industries like retail, of course, have been massively affected and have really had to go mostly online. But of course, um, there are some essential shops still open. So in terms of this kind of massive impact um, on the economy, we've seen the uh, federal government uh, extend job keeper and job seeker, but it's certainly not at the same level that it was in the first round, which has um, got a lot of people quite confused because the scenario that Victoria finds itself in is um, pretty much more dire than we did the first time around and um, the lockdown quite lengthy. So where are we up to in terms of the federal government's response um, and the the types of policy choices that they've been making in response to Victoria's situation. Yeah, well, that's a that's a hard question to answer, Amy. Actually, because it's been moving so quickly. So, I mean, the government's response since March has been characterised by uh, a lot of policy that's been made pretty quickly. Some of which has been pretty effective and at least ameliorating the worst of the economic damage of COVID nineteen. Uh, and some of it that's been decidedly less effective. Um, so, uh, you know, if we sort of run down the list, you know, the biggest 
uh, the biggest item, the biggest policy is JobKeeper, their big wage subsidy. Uh, that's been pretty good for those businesses that have been able to get it. Now, a lot of businesses haven't been able to get it, of course, and a lot of workers haven't been able to access it because of some of the weird rules that the government imposed, uh, like, for example, excluding universities from it, uh, excluding childcare. Um, and there's been a lot of patchwork quilt policy that the government's tried to make to deal with the sort of rolling crisis, particularly as the Victorian situation has deteriorated. So a good example would be childcare policy, where the government for a while there uh, gave every Australian uh, or every Australian family free childcare. You know, it was a, a quite a wonderful experiment, I thought. Uh, that experiment was ended by the government in June, um, and then they've had to deal, to scramble really, to deal with the fallout in Victoria as the childcare sector in Victoria is, is pretty much um, on the verge of collapsing. So they've announced some emergency measures in terms of childcare subsidies and support down here. Um, but there's still a big problem in the childcare sector um, then if you look at some of the other affected sectors, construction is in big trouble. We're seeing a big drop-off in housing construction, which will have, you know, big flow-on economic consequences. And this um, this is, you know, uh, not just about Victoria. This is national. Um, and then you've got sectors like higher education where the government essentially refused to step in to do anything and it indeed announced a big reform or so-called reform to funding, which will cut funding to the universities next year. So the universities are in big trouble. There's lots of jobs being lost in that sector. So there's uh, sort of economic spot fires breaking out all across the economy and um, the big picture is pretty bleak. Unemployment uh, is at the moment officially at 7%, but most people think it's more like 12% when you add in all the people who are on JobKeeper who aren't uh, recognised in the official statistics. So this is the deepest recession in 40 years and I don't think the government's on top of it um, and, you know, and that's before we even talk about the crisis in aged care. Yes, and we will get to that and give it full attention. Um, in terms of some of the economic measures that the government and Labor have given themselves for success, they've outlined that they believe um, government being in debt is a bad thing and that they also need to reduce debt wherever possible. And so that is a constant framework that they seem to be working under and why perhaps they might use the excuse that a line needs to be drawn somewhere. Um, of course, a lot of people disagree with that uh, metric and it's not really something that is particularly meaningful. But it was interesting to see that Jim Chalmers, who is the shadow treasurer for Labor um, a few days ago, came out to say that about two-thirds of the debt in the current federal budget was already borrowed by the government before the outbreak of COVID-19, which the ABC then fact-checked and said was absolutely correct. So it's interesting to see, though, that um, the coalition is using this, this excuse of, you know, we're in a recession. Um, yes, we can do a bit of stimulus, but there is a limit on what we can do. That's why we're decreasing JobKeeper and JobSeeker. And, uh, and, of course, you know, we're going to have huge debt and deficit figures in our next uh, budget. So, of course, we need to tighten things up. Um, well, you know, if two-thirds of the debt was already, um, you know, created before COVID-19, is that really a fair enough excuse? Yes, yeah, so the government's rhetoric on 
fiscal policy, which is, you know, taxing and spending, has been all over the place. Um, you know, on the one hand, they've liked to posture as sound economic managers who've got the deficit under control. On the other hand, you know, they've embarked on the largest Keynesian stimulus, uh, really, sort of since the, the 1940s. Um, so the government currently is borrowing hundreds of billions of dollars on the international money markets, and it's spending that money to prop up the economy, which if it wasn't doing that, the economy would be in freefall, absolute freefall. Um, so uh, there's a there's a lot of confusion here from the government about you know is it actually you know I mean on the one hand you know it's saying oh look we're the, we're the responsible economic managers we're going to make sure that you know we, we try and get the budget back into surplus no one believes that the budget said the budget deficit's going to be 120 billion dollars but I mean I think it's also worth saying that people who are critical of the Morrison government should be careful about what they're criticizing because everybody agrees if they weren't spending this deficit spending, if they weren't borrowing to spend to prop the economy up, we'd be in deep, deep trouble, even worse economic trouble than we are now. So, you know, uh, conventional economics would say that the government's got to keep doing deficit spending for some time. The Reserve Bank is saying that. Most uh, mainstream economists are saying that. Uh, uh, but that, of course, then collides head along with, um, you know, seven years of Abbott, Turnbull, Morrison government rhetoric that they are responsible managers of the economy because they're able to get the budget back into the black. Of course, it never got back into the black. No, um, even though we had mugs to show that it did. <laughs> um, <laughs> always a good marketer. But um, one of the other issues that's related to this is wages growth, which we've discussed so many times on this show. Um, and it's come up and it does come up quite often as um, a metric that the coalition's really failed on in terms of being able to affect it at all in terms of the policy instruments that they have been using. And another example that we've seen um, just in the news recently is Senator Jane Hume, who's the Assistant Minister for Superannuation, has been pushing um, with her Liberal Party colleagues to try and get rid of the legislated rise um, from 9.5% to 12% superannuation for all employees in Australia, um, saying and really using this excuse that really uh, if you want wages growth, well, then you're going to have to give up the superannuation rise, um, which would workers prefer uh, money in their pocket now or in super. And um, I wonder in terms of this kind of economic approach and the seeming trade-off that they're providing here, is that a fair assessment of how things work? Ah, well, that, that's probably a question above my pay grade, Amy. That's a complex uh, sort of economic question that it might be worth getting some experts in to talk about. But the politics of it are really related to the government's hatred of industry super um, and, and really suspicion of compulsory superannuation altogether. The government um, has made some very radical changes to the way superannuation has worked in this downturn. So, for example, one of the first things they did after the economic downturn struck was allow people to take up to $10,000 of their superannuation out if they were in economic hardship. Now, um, as a result of this, something like half a million Australians have emptied their superannuation accounts, completely just emptied the piggy bank. Uh, now, that it's a disaster for those individuals later on in their lives as they come into retirement. And it's mainly affected, of course, poorer and younger Australians who had lower superannuation balances altogether. 
So, um, so that's a major change to the superannuation policy. And now you've also got the government looking to maybe welsh on the, the legislated changes to superannuation to increase the uh, mandated compulsory superannuation contribution by employers. That's been baked in since the Keating years, if you can believe that. Um, basically, the idea that it would go to 12% um, because 12% is what uh, actuaries and economists think um, is the kind of level that would be needed for people to have a comfortable retirement. Um, now, there's some economists who think that that's not needed and that what would be better is if those uh, compulsory super rises were turned into wage rises instead because wages have been stagnant or even falling in Australia. So wouldn't it be better for the workers to get a pay rise now, some people are saying. And that's all well and good um, if the pay rises come. But uh, looking across the economy, you know, it's hard to see where more money will go to workers in the current economy because you've got millions of people out of work um, and wages are actually falling. Uh, so it's a complex area, but the, pol the politics of it are pretty obvious, which is that uh, Jane Hume and the Morrison government are deeply suspicious, if not antagonistic, of superannuation, and in particular, the industry super funds, which they see as controlled by the unions. Yes, and one of the other really important parts of superannuation, of course, is compound interest and the fact that the return in the end is actually pretty great. And so it is um, really important that you do keep superannuation where it is um, in order for it to, to grow and grow. Of course, in those um, early to mid-career years, that's when it's growing the fastest. So uh, it is something which it seems like is ideological um, in the response from the Morrison government once again. Um, in terms of a couple of other things before we get to, to aged care, <clears throat> We did see um, the outcome of the inquiry into the Ruby Princess uh, in New South Wales, and that's something people have really kept an eye on because it did have a federal government element. There was questions around the involvement of Border Force and who was to blame ultimately for allowing infected COVID-19 passengers off the Ruby Princess and then causing huge amounts of infection within Australia, including in an aged care home. What was the what were the findings of the Ruby Princess and um, and the response from the New South Wales Premier? Uh, so the findings of the inquiry convened by respected lawyer and uh, uh, former National Security Monitor Brett Walker SC uh, found that it was basically the New South Wales government's fault. Um, however, the report also says that because they weren't able to question any federal officials, including Border Force, they weren't really able to get to the bottom of what happened. Uh, but insofar as Brett Walker's been able to look into it with the evidence that he had to hand, he's blamed the New South Wales government and in particular the New South Wales Department of Health for uh, a breakdown in, in quarantine, basically. Uh, and Gladys Berejiklian, the New South Wales Premier, has already issued an apology over what happened there. Yeah. And um, it is something which is really important because the Ruby Princess was really quite early on in our COVID-19 experience here in Australia, um, seeing foreign travellers and um, people domestically coming back from their holidays. Uh, and we have... We did see that kind of um, really first crucial aged care outbreak in New South Wales very, very much early on in about March, um, which a lot of people felt was a bit of a debacle as well and, um, and that hopefully 
we would have learned from and continue to learn from should there be um, another potential outbreak in aged care. Of course, you fast forward then a few months on and the federal government who manages private aged care um, certainly doesn't appear to have learned the lesson from earlier in March in terms of a public health lesson around infection control and just how um, critical these really uh, settings are in terms of the vulnerability of the residents who live there. And we have seen as of yesterday that there were 1,999 active cases linked to 90 aged care facilities and the aged care death toll as of yesterday had hit 217 people. So this is massive, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's like a 737 going down, you know. that's The, the loss of life in aged care is horrifying. Uh, and what's gone on in our, in our aged care industry um, since the advent of COVID-19, I think, is nothing less than shocking, I think. Any, anyone who's looked into the details of this um, has been profoundly shocked at what's gone on in these places um, and, and even traumatised, in fact. Uh, you know, residents being essentially left to die um, because of manifest failures up and down the chain. Um, you know, failures obviously at individual aged care facilities with, you know, major, major breakdowns in infection control, but also obvious failures in regulation and in health policy at both a state and a federal level. Uh, the feds regulate aged care. So you have to say the bulk of the regulatory blame has got to go to the Morrison government. Uh, But uh, there's clearly been some uh, major problems in Victoria too, where uh, patients from some of these aged care facilities have actually been turned away from public hospitals uh, in in, uh, really, really shocking news that we learnt um, earlier this week. So um, the whole thing, I think, is an indictment on the way in which we've set up our aged care industry, essentially as a for-profit industry where some people are getting super rich, filthy rich, um, off the, the neglect and even the death of vulnerable people. And I think this is just another example of the way in which COVID kind of exposes the flaws in our society. Um, and, and, and aged care might be the biggest flaw of all. It, it's, it's genuinely horrifying. And if you've read some of the reportage from, say, Rick Morton in the Saturday paper, who's been following this story closely, uh, it's scarifying stuff. It really, really is terrifying. Uh, and, and to imagine what was going on in some of those really badly affected areas, uh, badly affected facilities like uh, Epping Gardens, like St Basil's uh, up in the northern suburbs of Melbourne, uh, these are these are charnel houses. These are death houses for our, our most vulnerable people. It's it's really terrible stuff. And we did see that the council assisting the aged care royal commission, Peter Rosen QC, had accused the federal government of um, not having an aged care specific coronavirus plan. And so we then did see Prime Minister Scott Morrison come out very defensively, giving a press conference. Um, alongside the CMO to say that, oh, well, actually, you know, we did have a plan. We were trying our absolute best. And, um, and and a lot of people feel that the kind of apology that he provided when he said he was, quote, deeply sorry that the response had fallen short, um, that people felt that wasn't enough and that um, the kind of the rhetoric that, that the Prime Minister came out with was not sufficient 
well, profoundly insufficient, Amy. There clearly wasn't a plan. Uh, and in fact, um, if you look carefully at the, the testimony to the Aged Care Royal Commission, that was all too apparent. And the testimony from the new Secretary for Health, Brendan Murphy, the former Chief Medical Officer of the Commonwealth, was uh, you know telling, I think, where basically they had to admit that they, they had a piece of paper, but uh, it wasn't much of a plan. Uh, where was the PPE for the aged care facilities? Where was the protective equipment to protect the aged care staff? Where was the workforce plan to prevent casualised, insecure workers from moving around from aged care facility to aged care facility uh, and thereby spreading infections, not just throughout one facility, but across the sector? Where was the plan to stop that? Where was the pandemic leave? We still don't have pandemic leave for much of the workforce uh, in this country. You know, uh, where was the Aged Care Quality Authority? This is the federal regulator. What were they doing on this watch? Uh, so many questions to answer. Failures up and down the line. I think this is a scandal. Um, you know, we already have a Royal Commission into this and we're still mm. seeing hundreds of people dying. I mean, I just don't know how you could, how to express the magnitude of how bad this is, really. No, there, there aren't actually adequate words to express it. And every day we are seeing ongoing deaths and the majority of those deaths are in the elderly and the people who have been affected by this aged care uh, scandal, which will be ongoing, unfortunately, as our cases are still around the 200s, um, there will be naturally a number of um, deaths to follow. Just finally, Ben, um, in terms of the university sector, there was an announcement recently that a lot of people were pretty shocked by, and um, it is really a new low in um, supposed reform of the university sector, which I can't stand to hear the use of that word <laughs> in relation to these policies. Um, but we did see the uh, Education Minister, Dan Tehan, say that um, the government is proposing that university students who fail half of their first year courses um, would essentially lose their access to federal financial support to um, HEX and HELP support, which of course is very crucial for any student um, undertaking a degree. And we did see a, a number of academics um, come out at at the time on the day to say that had this policy actually applied at the time that they were working, they would not be an academic today. What are your thoughts on this um, this decision and what would be the political motivation behind it? Uh, well, it's really, it's becoming pretty clear what the political motivation behind Education Minister Dan Tian's so-called reforms are, and they are to cut funding to universities uh, in, in as many sneaky ways as possible. Uh, so this is one example where they're just going to kick down, they're just going to punish students who fail more than half their subjects in any one semester. Uh, it is a shocking policy because um, it clearly punishes the most vulnerable. Um, it's unnecessary, too, because the government's already announced a lifetime cap on the amount of debt that you could run up as a student. So it's not really even going to save the federal government that much money in terms of help fees. Uh, what it is going to do is to ensure that a whole bunch of vulnerable students are essentially kicked out of university. But that's of a piece of all of Dan Tian's other policy so-called reforms this year, um, which have all been geared towards, um, you know, 
changes to university funding rules, on the face of it, he's saying that they're going to make people job ready and, um, you know, improve the, uh, the employment outcomes of graduates. But actually, they're just about cutting funding. Um, and when people actually saw the legislation that's going to parliament, there's a whole bunch of sneaky changes in there, for example, that allow Dantine to just unilaterally cut the funding to any university over a three-year period. Uh, the universities are horrified at that for obvious reasons. Um, so this is a full-scale assault on our university sector by the Morrison government. Yes, and it seems like it just keeps coming. Um, there are, you know, weekly announcements of new changes which uh, have put a lot of employee, employees and universities on edge about the future of jobs in that sector, and we've already seen a number of job losses announced at pretty much every university and every major university, including recently the University of Melbourne, um, ben, thank you so much for joining us today and talking federal politics and uh, hope you take care. Thanks, Amy. You too, please. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And you're tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm delighted to have with me Professor Cordelia Fine, who is a psychologist, an author and a professor in the History and Philosophy of Science program at the University of Melbourne. And uh, we're going to be talking all about uh, a few things, but in particular, the science of sex differences and a couple of pieces that Cordelia Fine has written. One is a very well-known book, Testosterone Rex, and also another more recent essay on a related note called Sexual Dinosaurs, which was published in Eon magazine on the 28th of July this year. So I welcome Professor Cordelia Fine now, and thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure, Amy. It's really great to have you back on the show, because um, I know that we spoke on the show in 2017, which feels like a lifetime ago now. And um, in the meantime, between that time that uh, we first spoke, um, this book, Testosterone Rex, has done so well and has been really well received across the world and uh, even won a really important award in the UK. I wonder if you could share with us that development and what that meant for you. Uh, yes, yeah, so the, I was the book was awarded the Royal Society Science Book Prize in 2017. And that was really quite an extraordinary honour. Um, obviously, the Royal Society is, I think, one of the oldest scientific societies in the world and very prestigious. Um, so it obviously meant a huge amount to me for my book to have been awarded their Science Book Prize. And I think in particular what I, you know, what was wonderful for me was you know, the book Testosterone Rex, and I'm sure we'll come on to talk about this a bit more, but the book is full of this sort of evolving scientific story. And it often features the work of um, women scientists who kind of were challenging assumptions and asking different questions and pushing the science forward and the scientific accounts forward. And for their work to kind of get this recognition through this prize was, was also very special to me. Mm, that's a really great point. There are so many fantastic women scientists in your book. It's great that they've been amplified and that 
I mean, the more that scientists are aware of this research and how important it is and what the nuances of the findings are, the more likely presumably scientists are to pick up where those scientists left off to pursue other angles and to follow up on different questions that were yet to be answered. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think one of the things that I really like about the work that I do when I sort of, you know, take a question and then synthesise the research from quite a broad range of disciplines and approaches that, and how, how those kinds of approaches have tried to answer the question is that, you know, in academic work, it, you do tend to be a bit siloed and you, you work within your dis- disciplines and you work within a sort of set of um, shared assumptions and you're not, you're not necessarily always familiar with how other disciplines or other fields are sort of approaching the same phenomenon. And so what's nice about the kind of work that I do, which, which can be a bit broader, I mean, obviously it sort of necessarily lacks the same kind of depth, but having that breadth means that you're, you're, you're kind of taking a, a wider lens on a particular phenomenon. And then when you write in an accessible way, in a way that sort of reaches a broader audience, it's not just for the, the sort of general public, but it can also perhaps be helpful for scientists who work from a particular perspective or in a particular discipline to say, oh, this is how psychologists think about this phenomenon. This is how neuroscientists think about it. This is how evolutionary scientists are, are thinking about it. And perhaps also how those ideas are changing in a way that perhaps you, you hadn't, been, hadn't been aware of. Yeah, that's so true. And we'll get to how science is done because you you look at that in more detail in your essay for Eon magazine, Sexual Dinosaurs. But I do want to first pick up on some of the basic areas and themes of testosterone rex so that we have a grounding in some of those ideas that you examine, particularly some of the really old ideas that have been really accepted wisdom that have shaped the way that we think about males and females, not just humans, but also males and females in the animal kingdom as well, and our expectations of their behaviour, certainly being based on what their sex is, what mix of hormones and extent of hormones they have coursing through them. So first of all, let's talk about some of those basic principles that really have come or sprung from Charles Darwin, inspired by Charles Darwin. And I'm thinking particularly Angus Bateman, the 20th century biologist who you refer to, and he takes a popular view of sexual selection. And we now know these kind of views on sexual selection as Bateman's principles. And I wonder if you could take us through that and what these early ideas and principles are that have since shaped the way that scientists have thought of males and females. So Angus Bateman, as you said, was a 20th century biologist. And the study that he did has just been incredibly influential and, and also important. It was a very inventive study. It was actually to test a prediction from Darwin's theory of sexual selection. So we all kind of understand the principle that natural selection works because some individuals are more successful than others. And that's a kind of that variation is a basis for selection to act meaning that certain kinds of phenotypes will then become more prevalent in the population than the less successful ones. And so the idea is that sexual selection acts in the same kind of way. And Darwin had this idea that sexual selection was acting more strongly on males than on females. 
And what Bateman wanted to do was to test the idea that, well, if this is the case, then what we should be seeing is greater range of success in males than in females. So, you know, the way to think about it is if you've got with males, you've got some males are fantastically successful in terms of their reproductive success. They're producing lots and lots of offspring, whereas some males are having no success at all, whereas females are all sort of, they're quite close to this average. Most are sort of, most are doing fine, but there are none that are sort of fantastically successful and none that are dismal, dismal failures in, in the reproductive stakes. Then you can see that sexual selection will be acting more strongly on males than on females. And so Bateman was interested in testing this hypothesis and he did it with fruit flies. And at that time, it was sort of restricted in terms of, you know, there wasn't genetic testing where you could find out who were the fathers and mothers of each of the offspring. So he had to sort of work his way around that using different kinds of genetic mutations. What he was interested in is working out how many mates, particular males and females had had, and then how many um, offspring they'd had. And the prediction was that that there would be this correlation between males, between the number of mates they had and the number of offspring that they produced, but that this would not be the case or would be less so for females. This is an idea that's really familiar to all of us. We're really familiar with this story of reproduction being cheap in males. So, you know, it's just this single tiny little sperm that's the sort of sole contribution potentially of the male to the reproductive process whereas in females even when you're talking about say fruit flies you're talking about a, the egg which is much larger it's a sort of relatively big juicy kind of thing and then of course when we're talking about mammals we're talking about a sort of lengthy gestation lactation and perhaps months or years of maternal care so it's a much more expensive prospect and so we are kind of familiar with this idea and that it leads to this idea that males will be, in a sense, designed to compete for many females because that's a, a really good way of trying to ensure that they hit the reproductive chatbot. Whereas females, because reproduction is very expensive for them, they're going to sort of reserve their eggs for the best possible males. And you can see the logic to why you would expect this correspondence between male reproductive success and the number of mates that they have but not for females because you know you just need one sperm to do the to do the business with you if you're a female if you're talking about mammals so that's what Bateman investigated and it appeared that his results did indeed support this hypothesis it didn't get a lot of attention at the time but then an evolutionary biologist Robert Trivers elaborated these results into this idea that I've just talked about this very familiar idea this idea of greater female investment in reproduction and this idea of cheap sperm leads to competitive males expensive eggs etc leading to chaste coy females is of course now a very sort of familiar idea. Exactly and I know that when there was a later analysis of all of Bateman's data the kind of conclusions that he reached were not the conclusions that those later scientists reached when they looked at the data as a pool. Yes that's right so it was two biologists Patricia Gowdy and Brian Snyder, and having seen the impact of this particular study on evolutionary biology and our sort of understanding of sex roles, they thought it was kind of interesting that nobody had really gone back and looked at this study, you know, to just to see to what extent it, it bore up to scrutiny. And, you know, what they found was that 
and they pay due acknowledgement to, first of all, the sort of technical constraints that Bateman was operating under and also, you know, that statistical techniques have, have improved since, since 1948 when his study was published. But essentially what they found was that Bateman had looked at a number of different series of fruit flies and for some reason he kind of broke off two of the series and analysed them separately to some of the others. And there was no obvious reason as to why he would have separated out those particular series. And when Gowarty and Snyder kind of pulled all the data together and, and reanalyzed it, they couldn't actually find any statistical basis for the claim that female promiscuity didn't actually increase their reproductive success. And another biologist had previously sort of noted that actually the separating the two series, the different series had, had actually come up with different results. So there was one that didn't show any effect on females of promiscuity of having multiple mates. But in the other series, in fact, as with males, though, to a lesser degree, females were actually increasing reproductive success with the number of mates that they had. But for some reason, those findings didn't get emphasis in the original paper. And then as this study was sort of cited again and again and again in the literature, again, it was the sort of findings that were consistent with this idea that promiscuity is only beneficial for males. That kind of got... Uh, carried on in the scientific literature. So as the scientist said, it was a kind of a form of confirmation bias, the evidence that didn't kind of fit with this idea of competitive males and chaste females was somehow lost from, from the scientific literature and the scientific discussion. These are really interesting reanalyses because they show that even when we're talking about fruit flies, <laughs> there's, there's something beneficial to females from having more than one mate. And Bateman's logic seems kind of unassailable, right? But here there's obviously something more complicated going on. We wouldn't expect females to benefit from mating with more than one male, yet it seems that they do. And this is really part of this whole shift or evolution, for want of a better word, <laughs> in thinking about this scientific story. So here, here's this thing that people thought was the sort of overridingly important thing in determining sex roles, which was, you know, cheap sperm, expensive egg and gestation and so on. Actually, here's something that we don't predict from that sort of simple story. So it seems like there are other kinds of factors that we need to take into account. So it's not to say that this discrepancy between egg versus sperm, etc., that the reproductive investment is irrelevant. It is relevant, but it's just that there are many other factors playing a part. It's interesting, really, that notion of female promiscuity that you examine in Testosterone Rex. You were writing about a few examples that I just found fascinating and also show that we knew that there were these exceptions to the supposed rule quite a while ago. Um, you were just talking there of 1948 and, of course, the social norms of behaviour and gender norms in the 1940s and 50s. It may have been quite shocking and salacious to suggest that promiscuity benefits females and reproductive success in fruit flies because that might mean that women might start to um, take up this idea. But then also you write that in the 1960s and 70s, it was noticed that big cats like the lioness might during estrus mate as many as 100 times a day with multiple lions. 
And then you also go on to identify another very important study that's really been quite groundbreaking, which was by Sarah Blaffer-Hardy, a behavioral ecologist who in her very early years as a scientist and academic was studying the black-faced langur monkeys in India. I wonder if you could share with us that example, because it seems like that's another excellent example of how things aren't as they seem. Yeah, that's right. So um, I think this was her work as a graduate student and it was a very male-dominated field, primatology, and so she was sort of part of, you know, the sort of women breaking down some of the doors to science and sort of finally being included as, as scientific practitioners. And, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly, they were a bit more interested in what the females were doing. So in the traditional models, everything interesting was happening with the males. So the the females were just the sort of vessel for the reproduction of the most successful males. And when female primatologists came in, they were kind of a bit more interested in what was actually happening in the lives of the females and what they were up to. And Sarah Blaffer-Hardy, I guess, was one example of someone who was sort of interested in what's going on with the females. And as you said, she was interested in these Lango monkeys and she observed that actually at particular times they were sort of crossing over to other troops and having sexual activity with males uh, in these other troops. And this was sort of really extraordinary because, you know, according to this sort of traditional account of sex roles and sexual behaviour, this shouldn't as she said, like this, this behaviour shouldn't have existed. Apparently anthropologists have this expression, if I didn't believe it, I wouldn't have seen it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's sort of like, there, you know, it's now recognised that female promiscuity, for want of a better word, um, or female multiple mating is kind of abundant through the animal kingdom. And yet somehow it had managed to remain unobserved uh, for such a long time. And and so this was a really important study because it did challenge this sort of rather simple account of what's going on in sex roles. You know, males are competing and sexually active and females are sort of waiting for the the best, best, most successful, high status male to to mate with them and showing that uh, actually female activity is is important, that there are clearly some kind of benefit to females from this kind of behaviour and, you know, interesting questions about what this might be. And it also opened the door to something else really important, which was this idea of the importance of female competition. So there'd been a, a sort of focus on male competition in evolutionary biology, and there was a sort of dawning recognition that actually it is important to females. Uh, there isn't just a sort of assumption that any mediocre female can achieve the sort of small feat of getting herself impregnated, that actually a female's status in the world, for example, and her access to feeding sites or to a good territory or a good nest, that's also going to have implications for her reproductive success. So actually, there's been argued to be stronger links between a female's status and her reproductive success than males. And this was something that had been, you know, really overlooked for for many, many years. But when you think about it, it actually makes a lot of sense. For example, looking at studies in chimpanzees, they found that the female's status in the dominance hierarchy was associated with how often the females were able to reproduce and the kind of success that the likelihood of their of their offspring of surviving and thriving and when you think about it that actually that actually makes sense but it had been kind of invisible for a very long time and and as i said it, it was often the work of of women in this case primatologists that started to challenge these old assumptions 
Yeah, that's really, really fascinating. And there was one other example of the importance of competition and promiscuity for females that I was really shocked by, which was looking at primates, particularly the low-ranking females, which apparently can have their ovulation suppressed by nearby dominant females or they can also be harassed by other females so much that they spontaneously abort their pregnancy. That is just a fascinating link between reproductive biology and the behaviour between females. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it really challenges the stereotype of, you know, females is all nicey-nicey, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Sure does. So in terms of this idea, looking at it in another way, and you do challenge the idea of, males just throwing their sperm around willy-nilly and being not particularly choosy as to who they decide to copulate with. You also give some examples of where males can be pretty choosy in terms of their mating partners as well. You quote one biologist as saying, the antiquated notion that males can produce virtually unlimited numbers of sperm at little cost is demonstrably incorrect. And then you go on to cite a spider species where the males run out of sperm after mating just once. And obviously in that circumstance, one ejaculation may not be enough to ensure fertilization of the female, but there's also these other kind of costs and risks and levels of energy that's required where it seems that males become more and more choosy depending on these kind of environmental situations and contexts. One that was really kind of amusing to me was one of your colleagues at Melbourne University, Mark Elgar, has some interesting male stick insects that are offered a mating opportunity every week. And you write that despite apparently having nothing more demanding to do all day than resemble a stick, they only rouse themselves to take up this mating opportunity 30 to 40% of the time. That really does also challenge some pretty big stereotypes around male behavior in reproductive situations. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I mean, you know, clearly we're not spiders and we're not stick insects, (laughs) but I think the importance of these kinds of you know, they, they point to the diversity of the way that sex roles operate in, in the animal kingdom. So it's this part of this shift away from this sort of, you know, standard story that was assumed to apply more or less universally, with the exceptions being, you know, the few species where the investment by the female was kind of biologically more expensive than that of the male, where there's sort of, then there's the reversal of the sex roles where the, the females become competitive and, and the males become choosy. But just to show that across the animal kingdom, different species are, are solving these, this problem of how to get reproduction done in all different kinds of ways and with different kinds of constraints, depending on their physiology, depending on their ecology and so on. And so although there are clearly there are sort of systematic factors that are influencing the animal sex roles, you have to take each species, not just on an individual basis, but also think about, well, what's the particular social and ecological context for this species? So so one example is um, actually a kind of bush cricket. And this is one of the examples where actually because part of the reproductive courtship, I guess the mating courtship, is that the male brings this sort of (laughs) to the female tasty sort of sperm package uh, to her as part of the courtship. So that's actually quite expensive for him. And so, you know, females will compete for access to the the male. So a kind of reversal of the 
traditional sex roles. But researchers found that if you change the ecology of these bush crickets so that there's, there's plenty of nutrition in the environment, the females are like, you know what, I can't, you know, it's not, I can't be bothered anymore. Um, and so this is this kind of, um, you know, I can, I, can, I can get my snacks another way. So there's this kind of, you know, reversal of what we would normally, you know, traditionally have assumed to be kind of wired in, right? Mm. And, and you can see that both, you know, with experimental manipulations and also with the sort of just natural variations in animals' ecology. So another example are hedge sparrows. So hedge sparrows can um, show a kind of a, a kind of quite astonishing array of sex roles in the sense that you know sometimes they'll end up in you know monogamous relationships. Sometimes you'll have one female with two males. <clears throat> sometimes you have one male with two females. Sometimes you have two females sharing two males. Right, so very versatile. And it seems to depend on things like the territory size of the female or how well uh, females and males are matched in fighting ability. So, you know, these are all, all kind of contingent factors. But I think the important thing is it shows that even in animals that we would probably think of as not being kind of strongly influenced by their social context or having something that we really think of as culture in the same way as humans, you know, these sex roles are diverse, not just across the animal kingdom, but also diverse even within a particular species. That's a kind of warning flag for us to not think about our own sex roles as being too rigid or or hardwired. And coming back to the point that you made before about the sort of cost of sex for males, one really key aspect of human sexuality that has really often been overlooked and again it's often women who have drawn attention to it is how inefficient human sexual activity is so many species sexual activity is hormonally coordinated so you know there's particular periods when conception can happen and sexual activity is kind of very efficient it's like oh you know, check the Outlook diary, here's when we all have to mate. And, you know, there's a very high success success rate in terms of reproduction. And obviously that's not how uh, human sexuality takes place. Uh, so there's this wonderful paper by uh, the psychologist Dorothy Einan. She was actually a, um, on the faculty when I was doing my PhD at UCL. And she, she asks us to imagine a woman who has sex once a week for 30 years and has nine children, which is obviously, you know, a pretty decent number of children to have. Well, you know, just some simple arithmetic reveals that for each child that she has, she's having sex 173 times. Now, if you think about that from the male perspective, that means that, you know, the the male who's having sex with this hypothetical woman is not sort of, you know, you have sex and then there's a child at the end of it. There's going to be a lot of uh, a sexual activity that is non-productive, right? Mm. Um, and, and that needs to be taken into account when we think about, we have to shift away from this thinking about, well, you can just spread your sperm and, you know, you'll end up with thousands of thousands of children. There are sort of specific circumstances in which males may actually be able to produce very, very high numbers of offspring, but they're very specific kinds of circumstances. And there's no reason to think that the sort of psychology to be driven towards that kind of approach to reproductive success will be hardwired into the brain of males. You are listening to my conversation with Professor Cordelia Fine, who is a psychologist, author, and a professor in the History and Philosophy of Science program at the University of Melbourne. And we are talking about 
the real science behind sex differences in the animal kingdom and in humans. And we're going to get to humans in this second part of the chat. Um, we're also drawing from her 2017 book, Testosterone Rex, and her recent essay in Eon magazine about gender bias in science, particularly when we're looking at things like male brains and female brains. And I'm using um, quote marks in the air saying that. Um, it is National Science Week, so uh, we are having an, a chat going deep into neuroscience right now and evolutionary biology. And uh, after this very short announcement, you'll be hearing the second part of my interview with Professor Cordelia Fine. Located in the heart of Hardware Lane, Dari Korean Cafe is serving up Korean street eats and fusion treats for takeaway. Dari Korean Cafe specialises in Korean street food-inspired sandwiches, toasts and burgers, plus fusion beverages and desserts. For more info or to place an order, head to darikoreancafe.com.au. Triple R sponsors. And it's great to focus on the human species now because you bring into the discussion something that is, you know, very popularised and it's not just a notion in science but it's also a notion in the broader society. It's echoed and reflected out um, a million times and you give so many great examples and it's this idea of testosterone being such a key ingredient, one of the deciding elements that makes up the difference between male and female behaviour. And um, you did kind of examine that in some ways in Delusions of Gender, um, the previous book that you wrote, and you were looking at babies when they're born and whether they have certain preferences for different toys uh, and whether because as a baby they don't yet have those social biases and norms programmed into them, whether they have a kind of innate response to go for a certain you know male type of toy versus a certain quote-unquote female type of toy but then you also kind of expand on that in testosterone rex and really go into such great detail about how we have become so fixated on the role of testosterone to predict things like male so-called cavemen behavior being promiscuous taking more risks being more aggressive I wonder if you could share with us that foundational idea that you look at in the book about testosterone and its role within the human species. So, yeah, quite as you say, in Delusions of Gender, I was, I was focused on claims that the sort of early or prenatal hormones, in particular testosterone, pre-wire different kinds of masculine and feminine interests. And I was focused primarily on the kinds of preferences that are drawn on to explain later occupational gaps between the sexes. So, you know, why do we have many more male physicists and many more female nurses? Um, but in Testosterone Rex, I, I guess I wanted to continue the story by looking at what's attributed to the fact that males on average have much higher levels of testosterone circulating in the blood. And as you, as you rightly say, we kind of attribute to testosterone you know, what we think of as being quintessentially masculine behaviour. So being sexually libidinous, being competitive, being status-seeking and being risk-taking. So what I wanted to do in Testosterone Rex was to really take a closer look at this, this core idea that testosterone drives masculinity. And as with most 
popular and sometimes scientific ideas about sex differences, always the, the story is much more complicated and much more interesting than the kind of standard simple one. So one way to start is to say, well, think about the differences in behaviour that we're often drawing on testosterone to explain. Now, there are often differences between women and men, but they tend to be much smaller than the differences in testosterone. So, for example, if you're looking at, let's, let's say, financial risk-taking, and I'll choose that example because, you know, sometimes people blamed the global financial crisis on the fact that there was too much testosterone <laughs> in the financial system. And, you know, sometimes I think people yeah. are using that expression metaphorically, mm. uh, but actually sometimes they're using it literally. Uh, they're saying, you know, there was something about the sort of hormonal status of men or that high testosterone sort of literally driving this high-risk financial behaviour. But actually, when you look at the, the evidence on differences in financial risk-taking, they're really small. And in fact, you don't always see them. So you don't see them in particular kinds of financial risk-taking tasks if you present in particular kinds of ways and you don't see it uniformly across different countries. So, you know, this already creates a bit of a problem, you know, across the world, men have much higher levels of testosterone than women on average, and yet there's all this variability. So there's clearly no sort of simple simple relationship, uh, linear relationship going on here. And then when we start to think about masculinity, it also becomes more complicated. So we tend to think about masculinity as a kind of package deal. So we think, you know, a masculine person is someone who is a risk taker, wants to have sex with lots of women, is really status-seeking and competitive. But actually, when we start to look at masculinity in people, like, sure, there are average differences at the population level, but when we look at individuals, we find that people don't fall along this kind of continuum. There aren't even sort of two dimensions. So it's not simply the case that you can have sort of people who have both masculine traits and feminine traits or or vice versa, but rather that people are people are complicated. Uh, it's been described as people having a mosaic of combinations of masculine and feminine characteristics. And in fact, even if you break down something like risk-taking, you can start to see this sort of the idiosyncrasies of the kinds of patterns of behaviour people show. So somebody who is really comfortable taking financial risks may not be interested in taking physical risks or uh, social risks, for example, and vice versa. So you start to see, like, you know, this simple story, well, high testosterone drives risk-taking and that's why men are more risk-taking. Again, it becomes complicated. If that's the case, if, if testosterone is sort of powerful dictator of risk-taking ability, how does it create someone who takes financial risks but not physical risks or, or vice versa? And of course, again, often when you, the kinds of um, risks that you look at, again, the differences that you see between men and women can often be quite modest and, and contextual. So we've already had this kind of complication that makes it basically impossible to say that in a kind of very simple, powerful way, testosterone is driving masculine behaviour. When you actually look at the complexity of what testosterone does, it becomes unsurprising that this is the case. So, you know, testosterone does affect the brain in a variety of ways, but the circulating level of testosterone, so this thing that differs a lot between males and females, is just one variable in a very complex system. So it's possible that other parts of the system may also differ between the sexes in ways that to some degree counterbalance 
men's higher average circulating levels, for instance. So, you know, for testosterone to act on the brain, it's acting via receptors in the brain, for example, and the sensitivity or the number of those receptors may be different. So there are different ways of kind of tweaking the system dials and actually different species might tweak those system dials in different kinds of ways. Another thing that we know from research is testosterone is just one of many factors that feeds into decision-making. So even in some non-human animals, social context and experience can override its influence on behaviour or stand in for testosterone's absence. So one really striking example of this was a study with rhesus monkeys, I hope I've got that correct, and the researchers were interested in the effects of what is essentially a kind of chemical castration on male sexual activity. So all the males were given a, a treatment that was, a, you know, it basically brought their testosterone down to castration levels. And then they looked to see what difference that made for their sexual activity. And what they found was that it did have quite a devastating effect on uh, sort of low status and sexually inexperienced males. But for the high status sexually experienced males, they kind of carried on <laughs> much as before, right? So even in the absence of this hormone that we think of as being, you know, absolutely critical for masculine sexual behavior, the fact that these males were high status, already had sexual experience, meant that actually even the sort of near total absence of testosterone uh, had no effect on their sexual behavior. Um, so it's these kinds of examples that force us to think about the complexity of the relationship between testosterone and our behaviour, the many other kind of factors that are involved, of which testosterone is uh, but one of many, and, and thinking about individuals in their particular social context, which also, as it happens, can influence our hormonal state. So I think that's like another really key message from research looking at the links between hormones and behavior is that when we think of something like testosterone, we do tend to think of testosterone as driving status or driving behavior. But actually, evidence points to the relationships in the other direction. So your status can influence your hormonal state or your own behavior can influence your hormonal state. And, and that really points to a kind of a different conception of what testosterone is for you know, we tend to think of it as driving the masculine behaviour that will be necessary for male reproductive success. But perhaps a better way of thinking about testosterone is like many other hormones, it helps us to adjust to our particular situation and circumstances and sort of facilitate appropriate behaviour uh, for the circumstances that we find, find us in. It actually enables plasticity and flexibility as opposed to sort of rigidity of behaviour. That is so fascinating. And um, at the beginning of your book, you also make reference to other hormones and chemicals um, like estrogen and say, well, you know, it's not just testosterone that has importance. There are a whole range of other hormones and even the chemicals and chemistry that make up the world that are just as important in being influences on our behavior and the way the world works. So it seems like we do have this really interesting fixation on testosterone as almost like being a symbol or representing, as you say, this drive for power and success and dominance and all of these supposedly masculine characteristics or desires. It does bring me to one of the really interesting studies that you also cite 
that was conducted by Janet Evans in 2005, which was a review of 46 meta-analyses, which sounds like massive in terms of the data that she was looking at. And you really draw two interesting conclusions out of that study, which was that three quarters of these kinds of sex differences between males and females are so small that if you chose a woman and a man at random, the woman's score would be more masculine than the man at least 40% of the time and vice versa. And then you highlight what some of the larger sex differences were, and some of them were frequency of masturbation attitudes towards casual sex and the velocity and distance that people can throw things, then you'd make a a really interesting point, which is, well, are those characteristics essential to male and female success as CEOs, for example, in the workplace? It doesn't seem like that's the case. (laughs) (laughs) It would be very disturbing if that was the KPI you were supposed to be meeting. (laughs) It would, it would. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely right. So, I mean, one thing I should say is that you know, my books, my books have been really interested in kind of scientific and pseudoscientific explanations of occupational gender gaps. And so I have, have always sort of tended to focus on the kinds of behaviours that people draw on to explain, you know, why we have, uh, you know, so many more men in senior leadership roles and why we have such still such strong segregation between the kinds of industries that men and women work in. And sometimes that's kind of seem to be taken as a, you know, there are no, you know, to to, to apply in a kind of the arguments I make to apply in a kind of blanket way to to any differences between the sexes, including physical ones. So I don't think we should necessarily assume that, you know, just because you're challenging sex differences in behaviour doesn't mean that you're saying that there are sex differences in the body, because of course there are. Um, but also there's no reason to, to think that there's going to be a similar kind of story for, for all sex differences in behaviour. I mean, actually, I think that one thing that's quite important to think about when thinking about links between sex, body, brain and behaviour. So unfortunately, our language in this area doesn't help us think clearly about it, I don't think. So for, for one thing, we often use the words sex and gender interchangeably. But also we use sex to refer to do different kinds of things. Mm. And then here I should say I'm drawing on the work by the neuroscientist from Tel Aviv University, Daphne Yuel, who wrote a really interesting article about this in, in the journal Feminism and Psychology. And so what she points out is that we use sex both to refer to, broadly speaking, what kind of reproductive system somebody has. Is it a male reproductive system or a female reproductive system? But we also use the same word to refer to the mechanisms that create those two reproductive systems. So we have this kind of complicated genetic and hormonal components of sex that in ways that we don't still don't fully understand, differentiate uh, males and females to to become, you know, a, a male reproductive system or a female reproductive system. And it is a complex developmental process, which is sort of the complexity of it was actually revealed by the recognition of the fact that in what are sometimes referred to as intersex conditions or diversity of sexual development, that you don't always end up with completely uniform combinations of sexual characteristics. But the point is that there tends to be this sort of assumption that if sex has an effect on the brain, it either has no effect on the brain or it has an effect and then the effect is 
similar to the kind of effect that it has on the reproductive system, which is to create two quite divergent and distinct developmental pathways. You know, we have a male reproductive system and a female reproductive system. So if sex influences the brain, and we know, of course, it does, and there are many studies reporting sex differences in the brain, then that also therefore creates the nervous system that we can refer to as, you know, the male brain and the female brain. And a lot of Daphne Earle's work has been first of all, pointing out that the effects of these mechanisms of sex, the system of sex on the brain are quite different. They operate in a quite different way on the brain than they do on the reproductive systems. And then to look at the details of what the kind of outcome is on the brain and show that it's that, I mean, her argument is that we can't really meaningfully describe brains as being kind of male brains and female brains in the way that we can refer to, you know, reproductive systems as being male and female. It reminds me that you've say, and you've already mentioned, it's not like a sliding scale where, you know, on one end there's femininity and on the other end is masculinity and, you know, you fit somewhere on the scale. Even when we create these artificial scales, like if there's things like whether someone's factual versus intuitive, whether someone's a problem solver or they're collaborative, there's so many different combinations that someone can have. As you've said, you know, you can be both at the same time, in fact, or or weaken both of those traits at the same time. There's not like a simple sliding scale where someone fits somewhere. And that to me makes a whole lot of sense. They're not mutually exclusive characteristics that one must have in exchange for the other. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think that's where we can go go wrong, sort of assuming that they're polarised. I mean, this is the feminist psychologist Sandra Bem. She wrote a, a really important book called The Lenses of Gender, where she talks about sort of three assumptions that are really prevalent in society. And uh, one of those assumptions or lenses through which we see sex differences is gender polarisation. And it's this sort of assumption that, you know, masculinity and femininity are kind of the opposites of each other. And so that would mean that, you know, if you have masculine traits, then that implies that you don't have feminine ones. I, I actually sometimes when I talk about this, I, I use an example from one of these books that's often sold to business leaders that's sort of arguing, you know, we need more women in senior leadership because, you know, they have this sort of unique female way of thinking that men don't have. So if you only have men in your boardroom, you've just got this sort of one monolithic way of thinking. And they, they show this graph where, there is no data on which they base this graph, but it, it is, it's showing the supposed bell curve of females and males on being factual and being intuitive. And, you know, of course, it shows that males are on average you know, very factual and not at all intuitive and vice versa. So, you know, classic stereotype. Mm. But, it, you know, it kind of ignores the fact that, of course, somebody can be interested in facts and care about facts and at the same time also engage in kind of intuitive processes. In fact, this is one of the uh, observations that was made by the philosopher Neil Levy when he was talking about this idea that there are kind of empathizing brains and systemizing brains and balanced brains. He gave this really interesting account of interviews with Nobel Prize winners. And, you know, a lot of them talked about the importance of intuition in their work. Now, clearly, you can't be a good scientist if you don't know facts. <laughs> you know, intuition based on a sort of lack of fact is not going to work. It's not going to win you a Nobel Prize. But, you know, clearly here, here are individuals who are describing something which did seem to be a kind of form of intuition. There, were kind of, there, was, something, there was something in there that kind of you know, they were just getting the sense of. It's really interesting reading these accounts, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, of course, that's built on facts. 
this is why thinking in these polarized ways, you know, you, you can be one or the other or sort of somewhere androgynous in between can actually sort of lead us astray that we sort of think of being factual and being intuitive as, as sort of mutually exclusive when of course they aren't. Yeah. And in your Eon magazine essay, of which we are drawing from right now, you talk about how science is done and how we perceive science to be conducted. And that there's this false idea of objectivity being the model of science where researchers simply dig facts out of nature. And you say facts about the world don't passively lie in wait for scientists to uncover them. It's impossible to do science without background theories and assumptions that influence the many decisions scientists must make, which hypotheses to test, what methods are appropriate, which populations to sample and the size of the sample, how to characterise and analyse data how to interpret results, which findings to emphasise. And the whole discussion we've just been having really highlights just how you can strive for objectivity in science. But there are so many other factors where it's the individual scientist and their approach and their perhaps unconscious biases that may be informing the certain choices they make when they're conducting scientific studies that then do influence how we read the results of something and how the results are then communicated out to the general population and consumed by lay people who aren't scientists. And it seems like the the work that you've been doing and other great women scientists that we've been discussing have been doing about really looking at where the gender bias is in some of these scientific studies is critical to debunking some of these false assumptions that have been made that we've already been discussing. That's absolutely right. So as a, you know, I sort of describe this this really unhelpful view of science as sort of just digging facts out of the ground as if they were turnips. And this is not this is not sort of anti-science or saying that there's you know we shouldn't trust science, but it's about sort of recognizing that you know that scientific facts are constructed. And when I say they're constructed, I don't mean that they're kind of false or lack some kind of reliability. But what I mean is that, that scientists create scientific conclusions by making all these kinds of decisions, you know, about who's an appropriate population to study. Like we're interested in competition. Do we just study males or we might be, are we interested in females, right? So, we, you know, we've already talked about how um, the assumption was that if you're interested in competition, males are who you should be looking at, not females, okay? And that turned out to be a kind of false assumption. Uh, it doesn't mean that the, res- the, the research that was done with males was unreliable, but it meant that there was no way of producing data that could provide information about the importance of female competition. Questions about sample sizes are really important too. So I did a study a number of years ago looking at neuroimaging studies of sex differences in the brain, and I found that a lot of the studies, the majority, used very, very small sample sizes if you think that male and female brains are sort of really distinctively different, then that might not seem very problematic. But if you think that the sex differences in the brain are probably, there's overlap, there's contingency, there's complexity to it, then having a small sample size is, is going to be a bit, bit of a red flag for that not being a reliable finding. So again, you're sort of starting assumption about the extent and distinctiveness of the brains of females and males is going to determine, you know, what kind of sample size uh, seems appropriate. What you emphasise in your findings, and we've talked about that with the Bateman, that there was a decision to emphasise the findings from a particular, you know, this set of findings that was consistent with the idea of 
uh, competitive males and chaste females, but not the graph that, that actually showed a positive effect of promiscuity for female reproductive success. And look, there, there are sort of so many countless examples of this. One of my favourites is a neuroimaging study of language processing, sex differences in language processing, uh, back from the 90s. Uh, again, quite a small sample size. The researchers looked at three different kinds of language processing and they found no differences between males and females for two of the three types of language processing, but they did find a sex difference for one. Now, the title of their article was sex differences in <laughs> language process right lateralization of a language right so they emphasize the, the, the one finding of difference as opposed to the two findings of similarity and that study has had you know enormous impact you know both in the scientific literature but also of course in the popular literature where it's become you know this idea that that men have waffle brains and women's brains are like spaghetti and so on and actually overall when you look at um when you do these meta-analyses and you include studies that have much larger sample sizes you find this uh, sex difference in in the brain and language processing you know doesn't appear to exist so yes absolutely there are so many examples of the assumptions that are built into every aspect of research design and you know writing up and what's emphasized what what, what gets picked up what gets traction I mean, it's really fascinating, actually. Yeah. One of the critical points that I wanted to close out on with this discussion was about how pointing out bias within some scientific studies and particularly the ones we've been looking at can sometimes lead to accusations and evidence of your own apparent bias as a scientist. And that is kind of amusing to me, but um, I'm sure it's not very amusing when it's been, you know, the accusations fly around. And of course, science is a very robust field and there are many back and forth exchanges that happen, not just in science, of course, in every other kind of academic discipline, there are very strong debates and arguments to be had about whether someone's right or wrong. But I wonder if you could just speak to that from your own perspective, given that you've been working in such a highly contested area that does bring forth a lot of emotion from different people who do have very strong views. Maybe they're even mainly intuitive of just, oh, well, anecdotally, this is just how the world is. And so the fact that you're challenging that, you know, challenges my whole conception of things. How do you deal with that? And how do you respond to those reactions to your work and the pointing out of, of potential ways that things could have been done differently or better? Yeah, so look, this was really the motivation behind writing the Aeon piece in the first place. So, you know, ever since I catapulted myself into this battlefield, probably just over 10 years ago, I kind of became aware that there was this you know, occupational hazard of doing this kind of work, which is that what you say is not really engaged with properly, but just dismissed as, ah, here's one of these feminist ideologues. They don't want to believe that biology impacts brain and behaviour. And so they're working really hard to try and discredit any, any such idea. At some level, I have, to, to the extent that this was correct, clearly this is something that you should be a worry that you should be sympathetic to. I mean, science is not going to get on very well if it's the case that people's progressive politics lead to them rejecting particular findings or theories, um, not because of the evidence or on intellectual grounds, but simply because they're politically unpalatable or inconvenient. You know, this is not what should be happening in science. 
But of course, that's not what my work is doing. My work is pointing out, and of course, that of the work of many other people, is pointing out um, the effects of these kind of entrenched, often invisible assumptions about sex differences and how, as we've just been discussing, how they get um, built into research questions, research design, analyses, methods, uh, interpretations, conclusions, and so on. And I guess what I what I really wanted to do in this piece was to point out that actually we're all worried about the same thing. We all want better science in this really important and politically sensitive, <laughs> to put it mildly, um, area of research. Like, I want better science, they want better science, that's really what we all want. And we're not going to get it, though, by not engaging with each other's evidence and arguments, because that's actually how science gains objectivity, is that we all kind of take a close look at the kinds of assumptions that people are making, take a close look at their methods, and so on and so forth. And then they have a bit of an argument about, well, was this the right assumption to make? Was this method appropriate? What kind of errors do you think might have been introduced? And so on. And, and, and this is the kind of way that, you know, the philosopher of science, Heather Douglas, describes it is that we, we can, by scrutinising each other's work and coming from different perspectives, we, we can see the biases and blinders in other people's work and they can see the biases and blinders in, in our own work. And that's how we get on. And it might not be very pleasant all the time, but like that's just really necessary for science. You know, people talk about science being self-correcting. This is how it happens, right? And so if you instead start to, you know, attribute people's views to their political motives, and this, this is in both directions, whether you're, you're saying, oh, well, you're, you know, you're just a, a feminist rather than actually engaging with the evidence and arguments, then we're not really going to progress in the way that we should. So what I really wanted to do in the piece was talk about the way that assumptions are built into the science of sex differences, the role that implicit or explicit, explicit feminist perspectives have played in challenging some of those assumptions, not on political grounds, but on kind of intellectual grounds, in showing the beneficial effect that that has had on the science. So rather than undermining objectivity, it's actually supporting objectivity and, and saying, look, we, you know, we, we've all got the same end game in common and, and we'll get there better if we actually engage with each other on the basis of the evidence and the arguments that we're making and leave to the side our speculations about the political motives of those involved because it's it's really not helpful. There's enough of that going on generally mm. and I think it's really important for the scientific community in a sense to be saying, look, you know, let's leave aside the ad hominem remarks and let's talk about people's evidence and people's, people's arguments. Let's be open. Uh, let's let's embrace diverse perspectives, even if we fundamentally disagree with them. We're probably not going to all come to a consensus next week, but it will actually help us all to, to challenge our own, own assumptions and at a community level improve the quality of the science. That seems like it's science at its best when it's um, approaching evidence with an open mind, taking the personal out of the science at the time and not engaging in personal critiques and criticism, but actually looking at the evidence that's being presented to them and engaging with it at an intellectual level. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, and that is, you know, if you ask people who say, well, that is the norm of how science and scientists are supposed to operate. Yeah. So I'm not saying anything new here by saying, hey, no. let's not, <laughs> let's not, let's focus on the evidence and arguments. I mean, this is not, <laughs> not a new idea, right? But yeah. I guess I'm just um, sort of pointing out that there's been a bit of a, this doesn't always happen. Mm. Uh, and I think the other part of it was that I think in a sense, often it does happen. So what's been really positive to me in seeing it over the past 10 years or so is that this kind of critical work that comes from, you know, if you want to call it a feminist lens or a gender critical lens or whatever you want to call it, to me it seems like it is shifting much more into mainstream science. So the kind of work that previously would have been published, you know, outside of mainstream scientific journals is now being published and taken account of in the mainstream, say, neuroscience journals. There are kind of cross-collaborations. There are people who are sort of both practicing scientists and who have this particular disciplinary training or lens in their research. So they're kind of, you know, in a sense, they're interdisciplinary within them within themselves. And this has been a sort of really positive shift. And I, w- I would just not like to see that being undermined by a kind of narrative that this kind of work is somehow undermining the objectivity of science when, when actually it's absolutely the opposite. I think that's such an important message, especially because we are in National Science Week and um, it's time to celebrate science, but also highlight some of the challenges of doing science in what is a very politically charged climate. And I know that so many different aspects of academia have been put under pressure by the developments in the global climate, political climate as well. So it's um, really a challenge to keep pushing on when things like facts and and science keep being undermined by influential political leaders every day. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's so important that when you do see these debates between, for example, in the area of sex differences in the brain, but of course other areas too, this isn't a sign that there's something untrustworthy about science. This is like this is how how science becomes trustworthy through these disagreements, through these exchanges it's actually evidence of science working as it should as opposed to evidence of a sort of of science riddled with ideological bias so I think it's really important that people people understand this. Mm, That's such a really really important point. Cordelia thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about your brilliant work and the great work of other women scientists who you've really drawn on for this book Testosterone Rex which is as we said at the beginning of the conversation uh, an award-winning book probably really the highest award you could get in science writing so uh, I really do want to say congratulations on that and I can't wait to see what comes from your work next and um, it's a really is making a huge contribution to science and to society so thank you so much Cordelia. Thanks Amy it's always lovely to talk to you. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And I welcome John now, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Amy. It's a pleasure and a privilege. Um, It's so great to speak with you, not only because of your horticultural um, academic background, but also the practical uh, eyes that you bring and knowledge that you bring to this particular area. Um, 
you know, you have been heavily involved in the restoration of grasslands across Victoria with your colleagues. And um, you've also written a couple of chapters uh, for the CSIRO on restoring native grasslands as well, which um, are very, very helpful, no doubt, for anyone who wants to understand the intimate challenges of uh, restoration in this day and age. Um, first of all, for those who are listening, who aren't acquainted with native grasslands and the wildflowers that are often um, within these grasslands, what types of, what is a grassland, um, I guess, within Victoria's context and what makes them so ecologically special? Okay. Um, so around the world, there is, at, at, at about our latitude, there is... Um, there are strips of, of grassland. So there are the prairies in the United States, steppe vegetation, savannah vegetation, South Africa, of course. So Victoria, the western plains of Victoria sort of falls within that broad envelope. The same types of species also occur in our open forests and, and woodlands as well. So it's the grassy understory and the wildflowers that occur both in grasslands and in those, um, those woodlands as well, which are which are actually also severely under threat in Victoria. Um, but, yeah, as you say, we're, we're talking about grasslands today. So the, the broad structure is that we have... Um, now, I'm talking particularly about the Western Plains grasslands, although this does apply to other temperate grasslands in southeast Australia. Uh, so you have, usually have a, a, dominant, a dominant tussock grass and then... Because it's a tussock grass rather than a spreading grass like Kirch or Kaikuyu, uh, the tussock shape necessarily means that there's gaps between gaps of bare earth between the individual plants. Now, this provides an opportunity for all sorts of other um, higher life forms, so plants, wildflowers, other grasses, and also um, what, what we describe as sort of um, lower forms of so the mosses and liverworts and um, algae, and they often form a mat. In an undisturbed grassland, they'll form a mat over that bare earth, and then that leaves a, an opportunity for all sorts of other seedy, seed plants to, to germinate and to grow in amongst the tussock grasses. So that's the sort of the basic structure, and that means that you have very, very high... You can have very, very high diversity at very small scales. And we talk about the diversity of rainforests, and if anything, rainforests probably across the world are, have have a larger species count. But the wonderful thing about grasslands is the very high diversity at small scales. So you can walk on and look at a square metre and maybe see 20, 30 of different species, and that's in an undisturbed, rich grassland, uh, which of which there's very little left. But um, that's, so that's the broad structure. These grasslands in Victoria ex extend from about Studley Park through to um, sort of south of the Grampians, out, out towards Hamilton. So, and then, of course, they pick up again in South Australia uh, in a slightly different form. So that's, that's the broad outline of the area, um, north, north through Ballarat, south through down towards Portland. Uh, so that, that's a broad area. It aligns pretty much with the volcanic plain. So it's our, our wonderful volcanic plain which I would like to add just while we've got a chance that it's still an active volcanic plane. So you never know in your lifetime you may see an active volcano out there. 
Yes, I think people don't really realise that, do they? <laughs> it is part well, of our. I mean, the time scale. Yeah, yeah, the, the time scales are um, a little hard for humans to to grasp. But yes, it, it is considered to be active. I think at this stage, and, and the most recent recent recorded eruption is what only about seven thousand years ago. And, and there's lots of stories that come down through the Frisian Islands about those those times. I understand. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and you have written a ra- about a range of types of species of grass. And um, one of those, for example, is kangaroo grass, um, which you've looked at with the Wandu Land Protection Group. Um, and I wonder whether you could talk to us about some of those grass, particularly grass, native grass species that um, are prominent in Victoria and that are particularly important when you're looking at different areas? How do you, um, if if an area is, I guess, degraded and um, not what it used to be, how do you think about what goes into a specific area in Victoria when you're thinking about restoration and the combination of biodiversity in, in a particular place? Now, you mentioned kangaroo grass. It, it's a fascinating species. It it's got a distribution right from the, 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 the South African belt right, right across Asia uh, and down into Australia. It's probably only been in Australia, I think, for around about, no, just for, for a few million years, maybe three million years. And it, it's, so it, at some stages, it's jumped the, jumped the ditch, and well, not that ditch, <laughs> jumped, jumped the northern, northern boundary and um, spread down through Australia. So it's, it's actually a sort of a tropical grass. It, it's a summer active grass. And it is a dominant character, a dominant plant of our grasslands right down through central Australia, across to Western Australia. So it's very, very widespread, one of Australia's most widespread species. And we're sort of fortunate on the Western Plains because it's also a dominant grass there, which makes the sort of some of those decisions you were talking about a little more straightforward because you probably in most situations, you're aiming towards eventually establishing kangaroo grass as the dominant plant. Now, that brings with it all sorts of interesting problems because um, kangaroo grass is, does, does not inherently produce a huge amount of seed, um, so it's difficult to crop. It doesn't germinate all that regularly or all that easily in cultivation, uh, so it, it's, it's been a plant that's been difficult to produce large amounts of seed for, um, but it is a necessary component. It's also slower to establish, so we need to use other grasses, so winter winter and spring-growing grasses, um, cool, cool season grasses like the wallaby grasses. So we use them to get a restoration started and to cover the ground quickly, while at the same time, time sowing a lot of other species along with that so that we eventually get a, a, a nice, diverse mix of, of species on any particular restored site. Now, Amy, that's, that's the very simplest form, and that's, those ideas have only really been around for the last 20 or 30 years. I had the privilege of having a PhD student called Paul Gibson Roy, who really uh, pioneered that particular approach, which we call the, direct, the, the once-over direct sighting approach. Um, but that necessarily means that you've got to have a, a site that you can take back to bare earth. So you can't do this sort of operation on a broad scale in, a, in an existing or degraded grassland because you're going to 
interfere with a lot of other values that you that you don't want to destroy. So that particular approach, and the one we're taking at Warndu, uh, relies on having ex-agricultural land or, or degraded roadside or, or something like that. Sorry about that. Another phone going off. Okay. Um, something like that that um, that allows us to to work sort of on an open palette. Yeah. And the um, other thing about kangaroo grass. I'm sorry. Sorry, Amy. Go on. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, well, the other feature of kangaroo grass is if you leave it unattended, it will literally dominate and will often, um, if, if left for long enough, it means the other plants can't get light, they can't germinate, do all the things that plants like to do. And you will, over time, um, have a severe loss in diversity. Now, this was, this, I mean, who knows how all these things have worked together, but back in the day, um, these grasslands would have been burnt on a, on a regular basis. And you, you all hear about cultural burning these days, and that was an important part we understand of managing these grasslands for uh, productive purposes um, before European colonisation. And so um, these areas that we look at now as sort of natural grasslands, they're, they're probably highly, highly cultivated, highly managed Areas that humans have been involved with for tens of thousands of years, so it's it's a you know, we're already working with a with a human artifact when we're when we're looking at these uh, grasslands. We believe, or I believe, mm, that's really interesting. Um, now they would have, yeah. Now this this allowed for lots of diversity to be retained within the within the grasslands because it was a feminine dominate or sorry kangaroo grass dominated grassland, but that dominance was reduced every year, maybe every two years, every three years, whatever, by a patchwork of, of burning that allowed for, you know, all the usual things, fresh pick for marsupials uh, so they could concentrate hunting areas. Um, the, uh, the harvesting of a lot of um, uh, plants which form a, a tuber of some sort so that, and that was a, a source of edible food. And some of us now believe that these are, these are highly cultivated plants. These are plants that were deliberately cultivated over a very long time, not in straight rows as, as Europeans are used to, but across fields using um, using implements, digging implements, um, replacing parts of the plant so that they would regenerate. So the very seems to have been a, a very, very efficient and effective um, food production system down in this cooler part of Australia. Mm. But the, the important point there is that Themida will will exclude those other plants if it's left for long enough. And in, very, in the early days of protection of these areas, we tended to fence them off and not do anything else. And then that meant that the, that the, Themida, the, the kangaroo grass then dominated and we would lose diversity. So we now know that we have to do better than that. We have to manage these areas either through burning or possibly through slashing and mowing, you know, other ways of getting the kangaroo grass back down uh, so it doesn't totally dominate the site. Mm. So I'm gathering that the the process of burning um, in a very specific uh, calculated way is to reduce the growth of kangaroo grass and um, ensure that it is kept in check. Is there any other function that burning has in a grassland? Um. Well, it's obviously a, a 
it creates um, a fire, it helps fire safety. So another mm. issue we might get to today is is the is the use of these native grasslands not so much for their conservation value, but because they're just a very a very useful form of vegetation on our um, on our public lands in um, in those areas where they occur naturally, and those areas are now being overrun with um, high biomass, highly flammable, year-round flammable uh, pasture grasses, which are not only excluding these important conservation sites, but they're they're also um, increasing the uh, flammability of the landscape. That's a one really of the problems is that yeah. yeah, one of the problems here is is that quite quite understandably people don't uh, differentiate between grassland types and so often we'll find the when there is a, a fire that um, that the poor old native, <laughs> native grasslands are blamed for the fire. Now, native grasslands will burn, there's no question about that. But it's it's managing the heat and the flammability and and the and the passage time of the fire. Um, and these and these landscapes, these original grasslands, of course, were, were highly adapted to that sort of fire and people moving in that in that landscape. Whereas now with the um, pasture grasses like Phalaris, uh, which are very high biomass and, and very flammable, uh, you have a whole different different fire regime operating. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and in terms of we've been speaking about the, some different types of grasses, native grasses like kangaroo grass and wallaby grass. And um, it's interesting you mentioned that, you know, they are very much uh, or can be seasonal. And so you need to have a really diverse mix of grasses um, in there. But I also wanted to ask about native wildflowers um, which you mentioned in one of the kangaroo grass case studies when you were talking about um, Wondu and uh, you were talking about all the different types of native grass, um, native flowers that occur early in spring with very much large populations. And um, some of them are quite well known. Um, one of them that seems to, to come up a lot is um, are the chocolate lilies, which uh, I've got a photo of on our social media pages there, this gorgeous um, violet-coloured lilies. And I believe they also have a beautiful scent. They do. There are three or four species of chocolate lily, or of that style of lily. Uh, the chocolate lily itself has this lovely, warm, beautifully warm scent. Uh, if you get a paddock full of them on a, on a warm, sunny day, that it is just magnificent. Uh, but even if you can get your nose close to one, it, it's a lovely, a lovely scent. I don't pick up chocolate necessarily, but obviously we all have different perceptions of these things. But um, it's a very warm, sweet scent, and uh, it's a beautiful, and it's a beautiful plant. And there are other species within that group which, um, which, uh, if anything, are probably better horticulturally than than chocolate lily, although it's it's still a magnificent plant. Lots of other lots of other wildflowers. So there are hundreds of species out there. Um, uh, if you add up all the grasses and the sedges and the and the wildflowers, the lilies and the daisies, etc., there are hundreds of different species that can occur in, across a large landscape. Uh, across a large um, grassland, and uh, so the, the daisies, lots of daisies, uh, very colourful. There are um, the lilies, as was already mentioned. They go with lovely names like chocolate lily and milkmaids and early Nancy, and lots of lots of different pretty common names as well as the plants themselves being attractive. 
I guess the trick is, and I think you had this experience when you when you took the train through the grassland reserve. That that grassland reserve is is really important, um, but it is not necessarily the sort of attractive vista that I'm describing at the moment. You go to places like Warndu and Chatsworth and um, um, which left out, out on the west and southwest of Victoria, you then get to the hot spot of this sort of vegetation where you've got extraordinary densities of these wildflowers. Uh, orchids as well. Some places just can't walk during spring because you'll just be walking on, on a carpet of orchids, and that's, that's an extraordinary sight. Um, Warndu Common is a, is a place that people can go to if they want to see this vegetation in its... In its not necessarily in its pristine form, but in a very beautiful form. It's it's a it's a common, a small town in a small village called Wondu, and it's been managed as a fire safe area by the CFA for for decades, and so it's retained and possibly enhanced a lot of the wildflowers. It it is a kangaroo grassland, but um, it has very very high densities of, of a wide range of very colourful species. You can probably find images of Wondu comment on the uh, on the web I suspect if we had a look. Yeah so and a gorgeous place. You did share with me some of your photos of um, parts of the Wandu restoration and the time scales and the time differences in terms of how the restoration was travelling at the time. And the one year after sowing picture really just looks like patchy grass um, with a little bit of uh, gorgeous yam daisies I believe. Um, and then Four years later, it's really coming into its own with a, a kind of range of different um, native wildflowers, it looks like. And then um, a bit later on in spring, it just looks absolutely stunning and, and really um, filled with grasslands and native wildflowers. It seems like this kind of active restoration and management of grasslands, um, of which you've been really a critical part of with the land care um, program over there, you know, it, it's a long-term project. And um, and I wonder, in your experience dealing with these restorations, what were some of the challenges that came up, particularly I'm thinking around, um, you mentioned there like direct sowing of seeds and that um, particular approach versus using pre-potted um, grown seedlings. What are some of those um, challenges that you might have faced in that particular um, case study? Yeah, I, I mentioned Paul Gibson Royal a little earlier. He's, he's the person who took this this idea to, the, to to a large scale, and he he um, ran a program called the Grassy Ground Cover Research Program project for for some years after he first graduated, and that explored these techniques and then one of the people he worked with was David Franklin who's a resident of the Warndu Catsworth area and he runs a native nursery up there and so he took he worked with Paul but he also took these ideas um, developed machinery um, and encouraged his local land care group to then take on the first of these restorations which was uh, a 1.25 hectare strip of what had been cropped roadside on one of the three-chain roads out there. So a three-chain road is an old stock route um, where there's a usually a narrow a narrow road on one side and then there's this lovely wide verge, um, two or three cricket pitches wide, uh, that then 
it, it's at its best, it's filled with uh, Western Cane grassland. Now, um, David organised his local community to sow that initial restoration. That meant that stage that meant going out. David does grow some seed crops himself, some some grass seed crops, but for the rest of it, uh, it was necessary to organise the the folks to to collect seed from the wild and and to and this is all done on a permit, um, and then make up these complex mixes, and then sow them, broadcast them through specially adapted machinery onto these large sites. Now, subsequent to that, and I was aware of all this work, but I was still um, doing some work at, at Melbourne at that stage. Um, that proved to be so successful that we then applied for money from uh, the state government, from DELP, and we've had a, a project which has run for about three years doing a, another 1.25 hectares. So that's, that's been sold now. And, and it's interesting you mentioned planting. Uh, by direct sowing, you can get a really nice suite of species back, but there's a, there are still a lot of species which aren't amenable to direct sowing, and so or, or they're very slow to establish. So we are actually doing some planting into the next um, into this latest restoration, and the fact that I think that's going to be scheduled for, for later this this week. It's been delayed by our mate the COVID, but um, mm. we're we're onto it now. Um, so there, it, it's not. There's nothing wrong with doing a combination. It's just that through direct sowing, you have no limitation on scale. If you can, if you can acquire enough seed and you have enough land, then it, it's it's a it's a manageable project. If you try to plant at say 30 or 40 plants per square meter into a, a large area, of course you've got a, 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 a colossal logistics problem in growing and paying for those for those plants. So direct sowing sort of overcomes those issues, and you know, worst case scenario, you you get a a, 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 a a landscape which is full of native grasses. It's not necessarily all that many wildflowers, but um, you, you would at least get the uh, get the wildflowers, get the grasses. However, that does require special preparation. You need to get rid of the existing weedy soil seed bank um, before you can sow successfully, and that's a fairly radical operation because we, we actually scrape the topsoil or the top layer off the site, which is why you need a, a site that has no existing native values. Um, and then we sow, we sow onto, that, um, onto that surface. So it's a pretty clean surface when we start. If it's not a clean surface <clears throat> and the nutrients are too high, then the exotic plants will have to compete the, the native plants and, and you'll you'll end up with a bit of a disaster. So it, it is something that needs to be done um, with, a, with knowledge of, of, of the process. Now, the other great limitation to all this work is seed. Um, acquiring seed for, for these species on a, in large volumes is not something that's easily done in Australia yet. In other places, like northern in, uh, the United States and uh, Europe, there are native seed industries, the native seed production industries now, and so you can commercially buy buy the mix that you want or, or buy the components of the mix that you want, but that doesn't apply to the same extent in Australia yet, although there are a few grave souls who are beginning to move into that area. Um, I think you're aware of Flora Victoria, who's a, yes. a, 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 local, a local company doing, doing this sort of work. Uh, so that's good to see. 
the advantage that places like the United States and, and Europe have is that there's a, there's a level of mandated restoration. So, so for instance, in, in parts of the United States, the road authorities are mandated to replace... Uh, when, when they're building a road, they have, they have to use native seed mixes as a, and a percentage of the, the budget has to be applied to the, to the vegetation. Um, that doesn't apply in Australia at this stage, and that, of course, forms a, a platform under a, under a seed production industry because they, they have at least a, a guaranteed market to some extent, and they can build on that. There are also rural schemes where they're taking agricultural land out of production and returning it to um, to you know, prairie or, or some other form of native vegetation. So it it, it underpins the, the seed production industry, and that's not available here in Australia at the moment. Mm, it seems like a real missed opportunity for Australia so far to start to support that seed production. Um, I do know that there are a few land care groups, local land care groups, creating seedlings of native plants, which you can um, order and pick up at, at that kind of smaller community level. Um, but I also noted there was a program called Raising Rarity um, with the Royal Botanic Gardens, which you were also involved in around um, creating access for to particularly rare species of grasslands and native flowers. Was that the case? Yes, that, that, the emphasis of raising rarity wasn't so much on grasslands as such. It, it was more on individual species that um, that are known to be recognised as rare in Victoria, and we were simply we were investigating their ornamental uh, potential. Now, of course, a lot of a lot of our attractive plants are already in cultivation, and these were some that either hadn't. Um, attracted the attention of the nursery industry or they were too difficult to grow or there's some something else was meant they hadn't really got into cultivation. But they were very rare in the wild in Victoria. They weren't necessarily rare across the whole of Australia, but they were rare in Victoria. And so we had about twenty two species we worked with there and grew them on into um, into a typical nursery in a typical nursery system, uh, presenting them as typical nursery stock and then assessing how um, how appealing they were as, as a as a horticultural plant, as a pot plant, or as a bedding plant, uh, and that's still ongoing. And the, the Cranbourne Gardens have um, have display beds, I think, out there of some of those species. Uh, there's there's then that hesita- that hesitation between that stage and actually producing enough seed that anyone's going to pick it up and, and actually use it as a um, as a production line. Uh, and that's that's always the, the difficult barrier to jump, of course. But if you don't find out about these plants and you don't put them on public display, uh, people people don't necessarily know of them or, or recognise their values. Of mm. course, some of them are a bit hard to love too, so uh, they're not necessarily going to make ideal horticultural plants. But we believe there there are probably two markets out there. One one is the traditional, uh, you know, garden market. But I think there's also a market out there for people who are interested in the rare and interested in the unusual. And um, you know, there may be a small niche market there for for some of these plants as well. There are some very beautiful plants amongst them. Uh, so it's, it's not as though they're they're uniformly unattractive or anything. They're they're, they're very fine plants. Some of them have difficulty with their propagation and growing, and some of them. 
are just uh, so rare that you can't uh, you can't access them normally. Mm. Um, there is one that caught my eye, um, and it's pretty beautiful. I think there are obviously a range of versions of it, um, but there's the spider orchid, which is really quite stunning and um, and very kind of unique looking. And I know that is you know quite rare in Victoria and has um, a few different kinds, including the dwarf spider orchid, which is a white spider orchid. Um, but there are some others that are around Bannockburn apparently. Um, and it has these kind of hairy leaves and a, a single flower. Um, in terms of those, you know, things like the spider orchid, are they some of the types of native flowers that people you think might be interested in? There, um, <clears throat> there are another whole whole issue. So, so Grandin also has a program. Anushka uh, writer runs a program out there, propagating and. Um, uh, recovering and propagating, and then and then restoring into the wild these native orchids like spider orchids. So that's a different program again. Um, Cranbourne also runs a program called um, Care for the Rare, which is uh, so there there are a number of programs that they they're operating out of Cranbourne. Um, the spider orchids are, are just magnificent, and and that's an example of the sort of the sort of plant that you'll see in much greater density and much greater numbers. Uh, when you get a little further away from Melbourne, uh, where the development hasn't, hasn't been quite so intensive. The other lovely orchids are the sun orchids, and we have them at very, very high density in and around um, Warndoo in that area. Um, but they're extraordinarily difficult plants at this stage of our understanding of them. They need very special um, conditions to to germinate and to grow. However, once they're in a landscape, um, they're obviously very persistent because they, um, as I said, they occur in in very large numbers in certain sites out out further west. So, so they they're not the sorts of things we're looking at in raising rarity, though, because uh, mm-hmm. we're looking at daisies and um, sugar plants and and other other plants which are um, easier to to grow in a nursery setting. Mm. Um, in terms of the Western Grasslands Reserve, I know you mentioned earlier that, you know, visually it's something very different to what we've been discussing in terms of these fields of wildflowers and um, and the, the kind of status of it at the moment in terms of its um, biodiversity and ecology is uh, not in the greatest um, <laughs> Condition. Of course, I'm sure each patch is a varying um, condition and state, uh, but it certainly has been making the news recently. We did see the Victorian Auditor General's report um, handed down in June to the um, Victorian State Parliament to really assess um, the Victorian government's promises of what they said they would do under the Melbourne Strategic Assessment, which was an agreement that was um, struck between the Victorian and federal governments that um, essentially switched off federal approvals for individual projects within Melbourne's urban growth areas. And as we know, um, there's a number of uh, suburbs that are very much sprawling in those areas like um, Tarnit, for example, that's still very much growing. And um, and essentially leaving environmental assessments to the states. And um, this deal, which was signed in 2010, 
meant that the Victorian government agreed it would establish a western grassland reserve and a grassy eucalypt woodlands reserve by 2020. And, of course, we are in 2020. Um, so <laughs> <right>. <laughs> hence the, uh, the report. And um, it, it was essentially, I mean, this is a word that many conservationists I'm sure will be aware of, but um, they were saying that they would agree to establish these reserves in order to offset the clearing that would be required to develop new suburbs like Wyndham Vale and Tarnit in the city's west. Um, so obviously this is a, a kind of very substantial environmental agreement that has significant consequences for the area. It was a 10-year plan and we've found that um, the, the Auditor General found that the government, state government, had acquired just 10% of the land needed for one of the protected areas, which was the Western Grasslands Reserve, and none of the land required for the Grassy Eucalypt Woodlands Reserve. Now, this is, you know, pretty scathing um, and a very disappointing situation, one that many conservationists were already aware of in terms of the government um, being drastically behind schedule. Uh, what is what's your opinion um, looking at something like the Western Grasslands Reserve, understanding the the challenges of um, restoration in different areas, and also, as you say, the intense diversity of species that can be found in small patches? First of all, what what's your thought on um, establishing something like an offsets program that they have, and um, what's your assessment of how it's actually played out? Okay, um, look the. Western Grassland Reserve, be, be, before that was established, the system was um, that if the developer wished to, or if anyone wished to um, undertake a development that destroyed listed a listed plant community, they had to find and invest in another another area of equivalent value. Now that. That would mean that if you say you had a very a small high high quality area that you wanted to destroy for development purposes, then you'd have to find either an equivalent area of very very high value, very high quality, and have that offset. In other words, you you in perpetuity or it wasn't in perpetuity. I think it was only for ten years, but it would have to be retained elsewhere. Um, however, m mostly you couldn't find that quality of vegetation, so you would then have to go to a larger, a larger area to sort of have an equivalence in, in terms of biodiversity, and, and, and that was why the, the term offset. Um, the government, and this was only a, a private market, the government recognised an opportunity to funnel those, those funds into a much larger reserve, which, they, which then became the Western Grassland Reserve. However, it was only, it is only lines on a map other than for that 10% of disparate pieces that they have already acquired. So the rest of it is, is basically in private ownership, as I understand it. And it's, but because there is now a, a government intention to purchase that in the longer term, of course, the, the owners of that land are in a difficult situation because they don't know how much to invest, how much to manage. And so... Uh, no, I think the original vision was it all happened pretty quickly. It hasn't happened quickly. Land prices have gone up. It's becoming a, a serious problem. the The point is, the point here is that they're dealing with a with a listed community from the EPBC Act in Canberra, which is another whole can of worms. Um, and so they're pretty strong undertakings that they've, that they've made, uh, which is why the 
why, why the report is so important. So, so the area doesn't doesn't necessarily look like a wonderful grassland reserve at this stage. But as Adrian Marshall wrote recently in the conversation, this this could become, and it has the potential to become one of the world's great parks. It's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of uh, a great deal of technical development on our part to know how to to restore these areas to the sort of level we want to. I think our own contribution, my, you know, my group's contribution, would be, say, for instance, area that, that had originally been cropped, um, that were, are within the reserve and are acquired by government, then they could become sea production areas, they could become restorations, direct sale restorations, etc. But that only works on a on a relatively small scale. The the, the thousands of um, what is it, 15,000 hectares or something, I think is the, the total reserve area for the grassland. Yep. Um, that obviously requires a, stead- a steady a steady developmental approach, even once the land has been requ- acquired, because there's a lot of um, agricultural weed out there, there's a lot of environmental weed, uh, there's a lot of feral animals. My, at a personal level, my, my theory is that it becomes so difficult that governments both federal and state, try to find a way around it and we lose that opportunity. Um, because even though what you're looking at on moderate mightn't have been particularly attractive, uh, it was reserved, you know, it was theoretically reserved and there'd be a lot of a lot of stuff going on out there that'd be that'd be like there's you know, a lot of ecology going on out there, even though it might be based around um, some uh, exotic animals and plants as well as native native plants and animals. Um, but there's, you know, it is a large reserved area that could, over generations, become a, a wonderful, a wonderful thing. Uh, so I would hate to lose it, to see us lose this opportunity, but it certainly has become a very difficult issue for the government. They have recently introduced new, le- new legislation, which they believe will improve the um, the stream of income that will allow them to progress the project, but. Um, I mean, they thought they were going. To, they, they thought they had it solved ten years ago, and they mm. and so let's let's hope they've got a better better crack at it now. Yeah, it's a really really critical process. Um, but in the meantime, uh, my focus is on desperately trying to retain what we uh, the very very high quality stuff that we have out further west, um, because even that is being lost incrementally through. Because a lot of it is on public land, roadsides, etc., and so it's being lost incrementally through um, uh, human action of one sort or another, um, road building, invasion by um, pasture grasses, etc. So, Amy, uh, one of the interesting things about kangaroo grass, just going back there for a moment, is that it actually ties up a lot of nitrogen where it does exist. It, it closes down the nitrogen cycle substantially. And so it's actually very resistant to invasion. If you've got a good intact seminar grassland, it's actually, in, in the, at least in the short term, it's very resistant to invasion by other species. The other species get in there, but they, but they can't prosper. So you're looking at a very sharp divide between a highly disturbed site and a, 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 a remnant site, and that, that, ba- that boundary doesn't really move very quickly. Uh, it's, uh, it's quite... Um, it's quite fascinating to just look at how sharp that boundary can be. Um, and it's just because the resources of that site have been tied up so thoroughly by the 
by the grassland, but by the remnant grassland. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.